No one is born philanthropic. You're taught it. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pokoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we are speaking with Jeff and board member Shona Goodman-Sohn and her brother, Jonathan Goodman. Shona is the chair and Jonathan is a trustee of the Montreal-based Morris and Rosalind Goodman Family Foundation. Jonathan, who is executive chairman of Knight Therapeutics Inc. and lives in their hometown of Montreal, was the co-founder, president and CEO of Paladin Labs Inc., which was acquired in 2014 by Endo International Inc. for $3.2 billion. For the last 25 years, Jonathan has devoted 15% of his time on Tikkun Olam, which has included fielding the largest team in the province of Quebec for the right to conquer cancer for seven years and filling Place des Arts for the Ted Wise Ort Jewish Education Gala for six years. Shona, a graduate of the Natural Gourmet Cooking School and the Institute of Culinary Education, both in New York City, has given cooking classes, catered, and cooked for clients in New York, Philadelphia, Toronto, Montreal, and Israel. Shona, who made Aliyah with her husband and three sons in 2015, lives in Ranana, Israel, where she combines her love for food and philanthropy by creating classes that celebrate Israel's abundance while raising awareness of local charitable organizations. In addition to serving on Jeff and board, she is a board member of the Foundation for Jewish Camp and Vahim, which supports the integration of new immigrants to Israel. In our conversation, we talked about their shared passion for Jewish philanthropy, which they credit to their upbringing. Take so, Jonathan and Shona, we are recording this from different locations, although now you're both in Montreal, right? Correct. Yep. <laughs> uh, but that's not always the case. So, tell me a little bit about uh, how the family got reorganized, part of it in Montreal, a part of it in Israel. How did that happen? We were living together in Montreal and then Todd decided to take off for a family year abroad as, you know, en famille. So we did. And the Todd, one year Todd program ended husband. up being, yes, Todd, my husband. And so that eight years later, we continued to live in Ranana, but come back frequently to Montreal for holidays and summer vacations. So that's what happened. So tell me a little bit, you know, talking about Montreal, a community that I happen to know well and love, what is to grow up like a Jewish person, you know, a Jewish kid in Montreal? What, what's unique about it, Jonathan? It is a blessing to grow up Jewish in Montreal because we have fabulous schools and we have in our community, like many, like many Jewish communities lives fundamentally together. Right. And it's safe and it's, it's a wonderful, vibrant democracy. Like living in Canada has been, is a complete blessing. And we feel very grateful for right. being here. All right. And, and Shona, what were for you the, 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 the more salient characteristics of, 
of your upbringing as a Jewish woman in Montreal? Community is definitely something that resonates with me and it's where I learned really the definition of community because everybody feels a strong connection to something bigger than themselves. So I experienced that as a little girl from running around with my mother to meetings and our house was always set up for a parlor meeting. Our home was always open. So I think that, you know, was just a model for me of what a home is and what it meant to be part of something bigger than our own family. And as I grew up, I felt like all my friends had a passion cause in their purse that they were selling a ticket for, a cake for, um, you know, opportunity to get involved with a play that also always was meant to um, support something, a cause greater than themselves. So I feel like community would be the, the strongest element that defines my Montreal experience. When it comes to Sadaka, Montrealers punch well above their weight. Right. Yeah, I think we, we used to say the community with the highest per capita giving in, in, in North America. But, but uh, Jonathan, you, you mentioned something about day schools and that is an area that is very close to my heart and I know to yours as well. You know, Montreal has a very unique success story in terms of Jewish day schools. What is it, like 55% of kids go to Jewish day school? And you've been working in trying to make that day school experience even more universal. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, what we were finding in Montreal was that the parents who could afford to send their kids to private school were not sending their kids to Jewish private school because the perception, there there was a quality perception. And so with the help of the Israelis and the Adams family, Uh, we went out and raised $50 million and built a state-of-the-art new Jewish high school in Montreal, built over our JCC, built over our Y. And so thankfully, it is now thriving. We have over 600 young souls. And I like to call it a a Jewish grandchildren factory. (laughs) the The second most important determinant whether a kid marries Jewish next to the home is high school. Part of that was also creating a tuition fund. You know, I remember from my time in Montreal, there was the idea of creating a super fund that would make Jewish day school affordable for everybody. Because even in subsidized, in, in Canada, they subsidized, but still, it's it was it was expensive for a lot of families. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We raised uh, 30 plus million dollars for tuition assistance to make sure that anyone in Montreal who wants to send their child for a Jewish education can. Now, this is kind of puzzling for me because here I am living in New York City in the United States, the richest and most prosperous communities and safest and most powerful community in the history of the Jewish people. And we don't seem to be able to do something like that to guarantee, uh, you know, Jewish day school for anybody who wants to go there. What's the key? What, What from the Montreal experience we can take and implement? you know, south of the border? Well, number one, I think that it's a mission. You know, the Federation um, made a a conscious decision that this was going to be a priority of theirs. So when you already start off with that mindset, you're going to do whatever you can to rally the, you know, the community and rally the donors and the belief system that this is our community's priority. 
So right. I think, you know, you have to start off with a decision and, and then it's all hands on deck, you know, and continuing to prove the concept and the importance of it. And, you know, and to God willing pass that message on from one generation of an, to another in donors, because, you know, just because we had the donors 10 years ago, there's no guarantee those same families are going to come through if right. they themselves haven't even had that discussion about what their philanthropy is meant for. So um, I think it really starts with, you know, the the commitment. And again, it's then it's the action after that. But I, I, I mean, I remember hearing that as a little girl that, you know, anybody is entitled to a ju- Jewish education if they want. And that's right. both formal and summer camp as well. Right. So right. Um, that was what we grew up around, that everybody has that right. Any any particular things like Jonathan from the tuition fund that you think are good learning points for other communities? Having a vision without financing is a hallucination. So the only way to ensure that our dream of allowing any anyone who wants a Jewish education to have one is to fundraise. And right. I'm constantly fundraising, so much so that most people don't take my calls anymore. <laughs> But or they actually, cro- or they actually cross the Montreal, Montreal is a small city, and I know where they live. <laughs> <laughs> but but there was something I remember. I mean, probably the, the the model changed since. But I remember that there was a very interesting idea that the the tuition support was going to be a third party thing. In other words, it wouldn't be on the schools to provide tuition supports. It would be it, that would be sort of outsourced. And therefore, it would be much more transparent, much more, it would be sort of an inverse voucher system, right? It it is is completely transparent and it's sensibly online. Uh, It's it's easy to do. It's done with dignity and it, it worked beautifully. And if other communities would like to see what we're doing here, we'd love to share. Yes, and we've been at the Jeff and we've been <laughs> showcasing the Montreal model a lot. And in places far as like, you know, Australia, for example, they actually yeah. invited, they, they went to see the model of of how you do the tuition fund. Although our system in Australia goes the other way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. Now, to be fair to people south of the border, uh, to be fair, like Quebec has a little bit of an advantage because there's there's very generous subsidies from I mean, I don't know if very generous, but there is a subsidy from the provincial government to Jewish education, to Jewish schools. Uh, so right. that makes it easier. But it, but it doesn't, but it shouldn't be an excuse. Although Americans should probably start looking at government funding for Jewish day schools with less of, of a negative a priori, because ultimately that's a source of funding that we that we need eventually if we want to make Jewish day schools universal. Now, the other element of, as you mentioned, Shona, of a Jewish upbringing and a meaningful Jewish connection is summer camp. And this is something that you also both care deeply about. Would you like to expand a little bit on that? Well, firstly, Shauna cares more about it than most because she met her husband at summer camp. Ah. <laughs> but I'm, there, there's a whole shidduch wall at Camp Rama and many camps that many people have met their match at summer camps and they've also met their besties of friends. So there's, there's multitude of camp lovers out there. So I'm not by myself. 
<laughs> but but going from the personal to the community to, to the community level, what what do you think is so unique about summer camp that that makes you so committed to it? I think that summer camp is this idyllic bubble of life where all the elements that really matter shine through and that you see them in action and you feel them, you know, minute by minute. That's why a day in camp, you know, is like a lifetime. It's where everything comes alive and where I find that every child gets to shine. And um, it really allows someone to step out of their rule book of life and to really experiment. And so that that's sort of, you know, why summer camp was so formative for me and, and my friends that it was people that I wouldn't otherwise have been with, you know, gotten a chance to come across coming together for an immersive two month experience in a, you know, fiercely Jewish um, spirited environment where, you know, we learned textbook Judaism and yes, we went to shul and we had our Shabbats in our home, which were magical and holidays were anticipated, but to be managing all that just as kids and continuously summer after summer, I just think it it's magical. Just to build on Shauna's point, all you can do if you want your child to marry Jewish are put aces in a deck. And the home is by far the most important statistically uh, determinant whether your kid marries Jewish. Right. High school is number two. But Jewish, a Jewish summer camp experience is way up there. And so it puts another ace in the deck, again, hoping your kid pulls an ace. I mean, I think I think there's something, and people like in that field know much better than than I do, but there's something about the linkage between Jewish informal education and your growth as a person that happens at summer camp. Like my kids became much more independent. They've met, they've met their friends, and that is done in a Jewish context. So being Jewish and that Jewish experience becomes inextricably linked to their development as people, right? Yeah. And therefore becomes a, a part of who they are. And, and also it's associated with fun. Correct. I'm a big advocate of taking out the oi of Judaism and replacing it with joy. <laughs> That's a good line. A hundred percent. Yeah. You know, and, and summer camp is the best example. Yeah. But summer camp, as we know it, is a very North American experience, you know, tailored to this particular community. And Shauna, you you tried, I mean, with, with a lot of success. Trying, actually. And, trying. And We're in the present and the future, yes. Exactly. No, and, um, and with a lot of success to, to bring that experience to Israel. And that must have been a fascinating, you know, experience in cultural translation and adaptation. You know, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I think the operative word is translation um, because we're not missionaries and I don't believe to be a missionary and I don't believe in cutting and pasting. And I believe in, you know, really thinking critically about what are the elements of the summer camp experience that are so formative and to, you know, dissect them and then to translate them into the Israeli landscape, which is fiercely different than Muskoka or the Berkshires, you know, where it's the land of literally milk and honey and with all these unbelievable lakes and mountains and um, resources. So Israel doesn't have those gifts, but they have the gifts of 
experiential education and the 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 um, the, the true um, neshama of the spirit of the madricha, the power of a counselor and yeah. madrich or madricha, and and really how to bring kids together in these very dynamic conversations, experiences, and kef and fun. Right. So that to me is the operative and the ongoing challenge of. A, I think, you know, I'm working with Israelis who come from the Israeli world of informal education and introducing this concept, but in their language. And that's been the most fun and so creative. And the real Mifgash, you know, we talk about, you know, bridges and arches. Like this is really, you know, when you find a project that you want to build together for, you know, I could argue just for Israeli kids, but kids are so fluid today. They they're mobile. So uh, whether a kid gets a camping experience in North America or in Europe or in Israel, these kids move and they just continue to build the peoplehood that we're all after in the end of the day. What have you learned about, in general, forget about summer camps now, in general, of taking a program that works well in one context and taking it to another? Is there any learnings from there? I think Number one, you have to listen and, you know, always, always listen to the environment that you're actually in and, and to really think critically about what is it that you want to do and it to achieve and, and to work with the locals. Because again, like I have a wish, but they're doing the heavy lifting. They're in the field. They're the ones. So it has to be a, a full team effort. And where everyone has a role. And that to me is, you know, the, the blessing of our team, you know, and I, that, right. that's my proudest moment is that, you know, I struggle and break my teeth to understand them sometimes, but thank God for Google Translate. And, <laughs> but, you know, to translate culture is way right. more challenging than, than, than translating just the language. And I would much rather be with the Israelis and working together with them to force me to really understand what is it about right. camp that I want Israeli children to have. And that's right. in the end of the day, you know, is, is what we're doing. That's the work. Now, Jonathan, like your sister, Shona, cares a lot about camps. You care about day schools. I assume that other members of the family care about different things. How does that work in the foundation? How do you guys agree on priorities and on on issues to to uh, invest in, etc.? Uh, so what we do is kind of like how the the British ran their colonies. We have divide and conquer. <laughs> <laughs> so we make decisions together, but we also have buckets to donate individually. Right. And and is there something that that everybody cares about? That is something that you take as a family and you really want to push the envelope there well we all care deeply about jewish continuity right and we all know that education has always been our people's best solution our best insurance for jewish continuity right and so whether it's formal or informal as shauna's working on through summer camps it's it's education 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 I also think, Andres, we started when we, when my mother passed away, we started off with a consultant to help us um, think together about the the gratitude we had in our life and right. the um, the various 
um, investments that were given to us. And we got alignment on that. Like we all had, luckily, a shared experience that way. And so we started off with what was given to us and what we felt the stickiness was and where we want to invest in for others. And that to me was a very, very um, telling exercise to start with. And so, as Jonathan said, we have core, like, you know, our core issues that, you know, we're all in alignment. And then the the shalom bite is that we also have our own buckets that we can also give as our individual families. So there's, you know, there's no conflict. But there was a very interesting process there. And I was honored to be part of it when, when you guys hired Maxine and it's one of the best professionals in, you know, in the field. I mean, there was a process of structuring the giving and becoming more strategic, correct? Like it was sort of a building up the structure of giving. How, How did that work? Well, for me, I mean, you know, this is a commercial for JFN, but JFN really helped me, you know, get think strategically because before that our parents, you know, as Jonathan said, were all about education and health and, um, next generation, always the door of a door was their mantra. Um, but it was, it wasn't necessarily strategic. It just, they had together their alignment and they were just sprinkling it, you know, in all the places that they wanted to. And, you know, when Maxine came on, she helped us think more strategically where we wanted to be, how we wanted to do it, different partners, our style, you know, and those were all different elements. Remember, we hadn't been very active and it was more of our parents at that point were much more, that there was their ownership there. So, you know, Maxine helped us professionalize our giving. Yeah. And, and there was a changing of the guard really in, in uh, generational terms, correct? From your, your parents' generation to, to you guys. Right. Well, thank God our dad is still, our dad is still, no, no, you know, exactly. very no, not necessarily, not necessarily that they, yes. that they, de- that they leave the stage, but that they sort of empower you to, to run the philanthropy. Yeah. And that's a very interesting yes. example. And the nicest thing is that our father was able to do it while he is alive. Correct. And because yeah. we can continue to hear his messages and hear his values and hear his wishes. And, you know, sometimes when, you know, we're sort of floating, I'm like, daddy, tell me again, what, what matters and, you know, where do you, where do you see things? And I feel incredibly fortunate to have that advice and that sage still, you know. If a family is going through the same process of sort of doing a soft and uh, sort of very subtle generational transfer, what would be your advice for them? Conversations, talk, 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 set up, you know, as many opportunities to bring around you know, what matters and the values and to get guidance um, and, you know, what's legacy. I think legacy is a big one. Um, You know, how do you want your life to be remembered? How do you, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, and and honestly, I I feel, you know, we've been very lucky. We've had parents who live their best lives in front of us and nothing was postponed. Everything was do it now. So I feel like I had live examples. It wasn't like, wait, wait, wait. And it was, it was, you know, they say drip, drip, drip is, is the greatest form of education as opposed to being hosed down with something. Right. right. It, it, it's very consistent. And I think consistency is important. Um, and just yeah. continue to communicate and you write down your, if you're bad at speaking, write them down. Um, make sure that, you know, the next generation understands, first of all, number one, 
where the wealth came from and to have the appreciation of that and what the the family stories are and then and then what your wishes are Jonathan what would be your advice for for families well i i'm much better at making money than i am at giving it away uh, <laughs> and it it which which is why and to my to my parents credit they recognize that which is why we have two buckets we have a bucket where we're we're commute we have to make communal decisions and we have a bucket where we have to make where we're allowed to make our independent uh donation decisions and so i think to recognize kind of who the players are as my sister said just to spend time understanding what everyone's desires and needs are as a family you i mean you you mentioned your your mom whom i had the, the privilege of knowing and like there's st- strong presences, but you also had an experience of overcoming adversity. H- how did that impact you? What, what have you learned from confronting, you know, illness and difficulties and challenges of life? It, it must have been a very tough but formative experience. Oh, so you're referring to uh, having cancer when I was in my 20s and then having a traumatic brain injury, which... <laughs> Which happened ten uh, years ago, and you, you never recover. Like I'm, I'm, I'll never be who I was. But what I've learned from both experiences is that every day is a blessing, and right. the happiest people are the people who are most grateful. And I remain so grateful for the life my parents gave, for the, the life Canada has provided. That it is so important to give back and provide so much meaning. I just feel blessed every day. Amen to that. You, you don't know how important mm-hmm. that is and how how critical that is to live with gratitude and, and what an inspiration you you are to all of us. Uh, Shona, any 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 learning you took um, from your the, think, the hard moments you had to experience? Yeah. I think that I think in the end of the day, I mean, I was I feel incredibly lucky that we had a mother who who lived by her her values and that you know she always said it feels so much better giving than getting and she <laughs> yeah. just would get these giggly highs like you know when you know she and and giving was not just money that was easy she said you know it was she had this mantra of doing three three mitzvahs a day and that could be you know writing someone a card or visiting someone or dropping off a honey cake with, or a photo with a little sticky on it like yeah. It's just that, you know, we're all here and, you know, to show kindness to one another. And yeah. that to me was really what philanthropy is about, is about stepping out of ourselves and having the capacity to make a difference for someone else and to, you know, the smallest gestures make the biggest impact. And I think yeah. we sometimes lose that in the scheme of, you know, these big gifts and it's in the paper and this, I'm like, that's that's not the impressive stuff. The right. impressive stuff is the day-to-day, the acts of kindness. It's built in our Jewish law of just being good yeah. to one another and, and being aware. And so that to yeah. me, my mother's life um, was really, that's her legacy. And yeah. we're able to do this through, you know, as siblings in more in a professional mode. But, you know, um, in the end of the yeah. day, that's what we're trying to reach. That's the theme that you both mentioned, the theme of gratitude and, and generosity and kindness is being grateful for every day, but also the way of manifesting that gratitude is by giving back. So that that's really the essence of, of philanthropy, I think, and you, and you yeah. capture it. And, and also your, 
you capture something that that now neuroscience knows that is that giving feels as twice as good as receiving. Yeah. Like- Shauna Sha- Sha- mentioned that uh, was talking about drips, and my mother right. never said anything once. She said it. A thousand times. <laughs> all the time. And we all, I mean, when she passed, we were like, let's write down some of mummy's mummy's saying. We called them rawisms. And we yeah. all like we're like blasting them off. And we're the eight and a half year difference from you know Debbie and and Debbie and I and two boys in the middle. Like we all heard the same thing. So I think that's really powerful. And our one of her core expressions was we're not put a put on this earth just to take up a space. We're put on this earth to make yeah. a difference. Right. And I, that resonates with me every single day and motivates me. Amen. Now, talking about illness and the like, the issue of health is is very close to your family. You, I mean, you you yeah. have a pharmaceutical company, you have big investors in, in medical research. How that ethos of, of health and research and science has influenced you, you think? So it's funny you should mention that because my addiction, it's been drugs that has helped finance my addiction to Sadaka. <laughs> <laughs> From one addiction to another. Okay. From one, one addiction to another. Listen, I've been feel I feel very blessed that my father started a pharmaceutical business. Mm-hmm. And my brother, who's older than me, went into his business. And I love them both. I just couldn't work with them. And so I started my own pharmaceutical business, which had a beautiful $3 billion exit after 19 years. And what I'm most proud of is that my siblings, I started this business because I never wanted my family to fight over money. I started this business uh, for my family. Right. And we were all equal shareholders. And at the end, I said, look, I've been doing this for 19 years. This is a beautiful exit for the family. I'd like to take a considerable amount, over 10% of our proceeds that go into the foundation. And without ever anyone blinking an eye, they all said yes. And that was right. one of the proudest moments of being a Goodman and looking at my siblings. Right. And so you heal, you heal with your business and you heal with your philanthropy. So Jonathan, you cook uh, drugs and Shauna, you cook food. <laughs> <laughs> both right? inelastic, both inelastic. Yes. <laughs> but, but as you know, as you know, uh, Jewish penicillin is... Chicken soup. Chicken soup. So, chicken soup. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So tell us. So, so we're in the same business. That. Yeah, exactly. You're in the same business. So so tell us a little bit about that, Shana, your experience of being a chef and making the most beautiful cookies on earth. Well, again, I'd have to attribute my love for cooking from the my mom's kitchen because mm-hmm. it was my playground. My mother let me make all the mess in the world. And so cooking was expression. Cooking was her love language. Cooking was the place where everybody wanted to be. So, and I was the youngest, so I wanted to be where all the noise was always. So the kitchen was the natural place. Um, And it continues to, you know, feed my soul. I love feeding people. I love educating people and empowering them to be in their kitchen. And, And now I love using my kitchen as a means um, to start a conversation about philanthropy because food is food for good. You know, that's, that's, you know, in so many, so many directions, but food always brings amazing conversation around the table. And let's, you know, my mother would say, you know, let's talk about our values and, you know, and Israel is the land of need of growth, of excitement, of energy and, 
a lot of need. It's a great segue to one of my mother's, I think one of her better Rosisms, which is leave your children your values, not your valuables. <laughs> true, true. And her recipes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but the um, food can be a, a great bridge and community uh, building. So so why don't you elaborate a little bit about what you're trying to do with cooking? I know we've done something together through JFN, but the, there's yeah. There's a lot there. So so why don't you walk us a little bit through that experience? So basically, like I, I use my kitchen as a platform to talk about social change. And, and that's really just, you know, doing a cooking class and bringing people from the community together to, yes, learn beautiful recipes, learn farm to table, learn how to eat locally, you know, whatever the theme is, but also to connect it to where we're actually living and the social needs centered around food. So an example is my neighbor is Joseph Gittler, another JFN right. member who, who started Leket, which is, you know, that they rescue food. Um, right. And so we'll do a cooking class using all your ugly vegetables, um, mm -hmm. you know, stuff that people usually toss and we'll make gorgeous ratatouille or roasted vegetables or, you know, purees and, and talk about, yes, of course, the food, but also talk about, you know, being mindful of waste and what we could be doing right. and connecting to Leket as an organization. And, and I really feel, you know, as I said, I feel everybody feels greater giving than getting. And people mm -hmm. need to be guided about where to give, like, especially in Israel, because it, people are very suspicious in Israel. Like, why are you mm -hmm. giving? Why are you doing this? Why? Why? And like stuff that, you know, in North America, Stucca was just... It, it's part of our rhythm of life. It's what we right. do to feel Jewish. And in Israel, it's a little bit different. I mean, they're the yeah, most generous the culture people, also is but, The culture also is yeah. different, right? No, no one is born philanthropic. You're taught it. How many times do we tell our young kids, you have to learn how to share? It's a right. taught skill. And thankfully, yes. we had our parents, particularly your mother, who taught us how to give. I will fine-tune that. I would say the instinct of being generous and altruistic is an instinct. Like we humans have that. But to transform that into a practice is when you're when you're right, like you have to teach that. It doesn't you have to like teach not, it. Yeah. If not that instinct like gets atrophied, like anything that doesn't get exercised, it gets atrophied. Like little yeah. children are helpful. You know, they want to help. They're going to do it. But if, they, if you don't train that, they lose it. Like, like other things that, that we have in our instinct that we don't, that we don't exercise. So I think that you're absolutely right. And incidentally, we have a JFN, um, you know, a program called Honeycomb who, that work with teens to, to teach them. Yeah. About it's one of, one of the amazing programs we have. And, and you, Shona, you were also involved in family philanthropy when we started that in Israel, correct? Yes. Yes. I just had a meeting with them this morning. Yes. The <laughs> Center for Family Philanthropy. Yeah. So, which is another cultural adaptation, right? Of a North American model to the Israeli context, which is which is not easy. Which is not easy and which yeah. we, we work on just in, and I love my team because it's half Israelis and half, actually we have a European and a North American. So right. we are all coming at it. We just today discussed what legacy means right. and, you know, and, and how to translate that. And it was a fascinating conversation because I was like, Lador Vador, like, you know, like that's another one of our, you know, expressions that we use. And the Israelis were like, no, that doesn't work <laughs> at all. It doesn't translate well because 
there it's all attached to the Holocaust, Midor, Lador, you know, right. and it's very gloomy and heavy. I'm like, oh, guys, I didn't even know that, you right. know, because when I say Lador, Lador, I just sort of sing it out loud exactly. because it was a beautiful song in our shul that, you know, it, it just, it makes you feel the ultimate connection to generations before us and going forward. But for them, it was very heavy. And so... Yeah. Not everything translates, and we really need to listen to one another to understand because we're all after the same stuff. Jonathan, I, I, I'm thinking a little bit about, you know, the shift gear of, about your work in the ph- pharmaceutical industry and in the health industry. When you look at the COVID experience, are you optimistic about science, about human progress? Or are you pessimistic? I'm always listening for someone who fell on their head and was told whose whose wife, amazing wife, was told I had a 10% chance of living. I'm optimistic. <laughs> we while it's very difficult for science to stay ahead of nature, we're doing a great job and vaccines are effective. And I believe we will return to normalcy very soon. Is there something that you personally or in business learn from the pandemic experience? Something like a particular insight, something that changed in the way which you look at the industry or did you look at your life even? Well, for business, this is, I've been, I've been selling drugs now for 29 years and mm-hmm. I never thought I would experience a market where prescriptions would go down. Uh-huh. And so for the first time in my career, Prescriptions went down because doctors weren't seeing as many patients as they were. And so I could never fathom that happening, and it happened. So Which brings a whole slew of problems, right? It like, it, it, yes, it also problems. and People don't you know, get diagnosed. and uh, Yeah, not, not writing as many prescriptions. The business is down, and then we have supply chain issues. Just, it's just been, it's been a challenge. And as in life, so... Uh, it's better to be lucky than smart. And Mazal stands for Makam Zman Lilmot. You're at the right place, at the right time, and you study or you work hard, you'll be lucky. And right. so we've been, my business has been unlucky recently, but we will prevail uh, because uh, life is going to return to normal. And for you, Shona, like you went through a lot of lockdowns, eh? We went through lockdowns, but I have to say, and, you know, I feel a little guilty saying it, like I kind of thrived in it because I discovered Zoom and Mm. I started teaching cooking classes and bridging all my worlds together. So I felt like as much as we all wished Israel to be swelled with, you know, tourists and everything got shut down. And so I was able to, from my kitchen, give a little bit of Israel to so many hungry diaspora Jews who were so starving for connection to Israel. And that to me filled my, filled my void because I was able to feel the energy cross through my kitchen of the, so many people just love Israel and so many people need it to feel Jewish. And so if I could transmit that through my cooking classes on Zoom, which I never, ever thought I could talk into a computer. Who knew? So that right. kept me really busy. And Zoom was a was a great equalizer in a way. Like it, it was, I mean, it had a lot of problems. I'm not idealizing it, but there was something positive about flattening distances, right? Like you could be operating yeah. 
and we felt it at JFN, and I'm sure you felt it in in your family and in your work as well, because you could, you, as you said, you could be in your kitchen and be everywhere around the world at the same time. And really participate in meetings that I never, ever thought I could be participating in. Right. So, you know, I think that global Jewish peace um, just magnified for me. And now it's like, yeah. I mean, you could be busy all day long, like 24-7 now, because there's so right. much content and so many great people and opportunities to, to connect with people and people are so open. Right. Jonathan, in, in the U.S., actually, the pandemic was, quote unquote, good for Jewish day schools because Jewish day schools were particularly good at keeping classes and, and even pivoting to virtual was done in a very good way. And then they reopened earlier. Do you see the same in Montreal? Was there a was that like, do you think that the community and schools in particularly coped well? I think we'll all be better the next pandemic. I think there's a lot of learning. <laughs> so I, we're, we're still in it. So it's hard. It's hard to have a viewpoint. But I think I think we participated very well. As my kids, I'm immunocompromised, and yeah. so I didn't. My kids, my my youngest Orly, uh, never saw grade four. She did all right. online. Right. And thankfully, uh, she she thrived under those circumstances. Uh, I hope I hope we never have to go through it again. Right. But but you think that I think that this, this, the, the silver lining there is that, you know, excellent professional leadership in the school and in the community made that possible, right? And you've been investing in that leadership and in that absolutely they 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 fired they were firing on all cylinders. Right, 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 right. And and um and if I remember something from Montreal it's like the quality of teachers and principals and and leaders in general and i think that that's also something that we should learn south of the border to invest enough in in the training of those people absolutely listen it's the it's the teacher who makes who brings the material to life who impacts the child the most right as you were saying you know shauna before is the teacher is the 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 camp counselor uh, is what what Pierre Nora called les lieux de la mémoire, you know, the places of memory. That's how, yeah. That's how education goes through. It goes through people, and those. And if we invest enough in training those people and in treating them well and paying them properly and you know giving them value, it's going to be good for our own kids and our own families. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. And I think that we have to move away from counselors being babysitters and look at them as, right. as professional as influencers, you know, as and as educators. Right. And, you know, that's our full focus because I sit on the board for Foundation for Jewish Camp. That's what we talk about. It's not just the camper experience. It's the professional experience of the counselors right. because everybody is fragile and everybody needs this type of attention and nurturing. So um, it's a very uh, big shift. I mean, I can tell you from my own kid, like, I don't know what, what, you know, experience is more formative for him being a camper or being a counselor. <laughs> I think being yeah. a counselor is, well, much, they, is much powerful than being a camper. And every camper should give at least one year to being a counselor because it's paying it forward to the system. Right. And that's the only way. And I say that to my sons, you know, that just give one, two summers at least to pay it forward. You know, you were blessed with amazing counselors. You're no rush. And you're going to develop all those incredible leadership and soft skills that you need to be a mensch. Now, for, for both of you, I think that, you know, you're 
you are very multicultural because just living in Montreal makes you multicultural, like French and English and you know different communities and even the Jewish community, Sephardic and Ashkenazi and and you, Shana, you know, moving to Israel to a completely different culture. I mean, that is the same and yet different. So, what is your learning about living in multicultural environments? It's lucky. It's very fortunate because you're exposed to so many different ways of living and that there's no one guidebook of how to live life. Right. And if you're open to it and you get out of your bubble, then you have the richest life available to you. And right. I think part of my ease, as much as my Hebrew definitely stammers are long, um, I was used to growing up in a culture that had a language around me that I didn't necessarily understand at all but I respected it. And right. it was part of my living. Um, so, you know, it continues to uh, stimulate me in ways of wanting more and, you know, and moving me in different directions. So I think that's, you know, a, an incredibly fortunate piece of living in a place that is as diverse as Montreal and now for me, Ranana. For you, Jonathan? As I, I think diversity is a blessing. I mean, no one, no one ever said, I wish I didn't know this language. <laughs> it's a blessing and it gives differing viewpoints and differing, differing way to solve problems. It's, it's just, it's an advantage. Right. And our, our kids are indeed blessed to be surrounded by so many vibrant cultures. Right. And, and this is something that we need to relearn actually, especially after the pandemic, which is the the management of diversity, both in the Jewish yeah. community and, and outside. I think it's, yeah. you know, in Israel, for example, I think one of the key issues for the society is how to manage diversity, right? Like Which, which actually brings brings up something I'd like to talk about, because you haven't asked me yet, about yeah. uh, Israelis of Ethiopian descent and how we could best help them. And it speaks to what we talked about earlier in this conversation about education. The foundation is trying to raise... $10 million, $5 million for each of Hebrew University and Tel Aviv University mm -hmm. to support scholarships for Israelis of Ethiopian descent. I went, I went to a fundraiser for Ono College in Montreal where Rabbi Karan Shlomo gave a talk. And he started off by saying 26% of the inmates in Israeli military prisons are Ethiopians. Right. And, and then he started saying for the same education an Israeli of Ethiopian descent will earn less money than a white Israeli. And if I close my eyes, and he kept going, and if I close my eyes, I thought he was talking about Texas, not talking about Israel. I left disgusted. Right. Of all people, our people should be above racism. Right. And, and, and it's not just racism. I think that it's, it's particularly painful in Israel when a minority is discriminated against or underperforming because the very essence of the existence of the country is to bring the different groups together and to eliminate the differences between between Jews, make everybody at home. It, it is a tragedy when it happens in Texas, but it is a double tragedy when it happens in Israel. Because, that, because that's the, exactly how I felt. And yeah. our people's solution has always been education, which is Correct. why I'm out raising this $10 million because it will touch lives and no one will ever say that the money was wasted. You can never go wrong right. educating. Right. I think that we we can't, like having an underclass 
in Israel would be a collective failure of all of us, right? Not just a failure, but an embarrassing failure. Like right. we need to be better. Right. And and we can, and we can. We, you know, as you said, we we always used, you know, uh, education as the ultimate lever of social mobility and progress. So we can we can that that's the Jewish way, you know. Exactly. And, exactly. And I think also it's never too late to start. And I right. think, you know, the beauty of the of having your own country and such a young country is that it's malleable, you know, right. and that people are the ones who can make this change. And Jonathan's initiative is just one vision. And he's the the strength of it is in the fact that he has a whole group of funders with him mm-hmm. that want to do this. And that that's the magic of, yeah. you know, one voice. And then you realize how many people are out there that want to help. Right. And that's right. infectious. Like that's the good infection, you know, and, that, that we all want. And, and one of the things is that, especially when it comes to, uh, to uh, Ethiopian Israelis, there is an element of coordination among different people. I mean, I think that there is, there was a lot being, there has been a lot of efforts to help uh, that community, but they were a little bit disjointed, right? There was no yeah. uh, a, a mapping of the situation. And I think that these initiatives and others uh, can also benefit from that coordinating mechanism, which is part of what Jeff and likes doing, which is bringing funders together to help one another, but also to learn what others are doing, because it could be very synergetic. We need to, as a people, we need to do more with less. Right. And by working right. together, we can do that. And so Absolutely. one of the things that we're working on is to bring everyone in Israel who has anything, who is trying to better the lives of Israelis of Ethiopian descent together to see how we can do more with less. Right. And map out what we're doing, see where the, for the duplication where the gaps. Yes. Where the gaps, you know, generally funders, you know, do amazing do amazing things, but they're also moving packs, right? So there's there's yeah. always areas that are overfunded and areas that are underfunded. And then the connections, like you're talking about higher ed, but you need to work with the army too, because they go from the army to university. Yeah. And that that transition is where a lot of people fall through, as you mentioned, the military prisons and so forth. But I think what's really special is that um, from from the group that Jonathan has created, we're seeing the second generation of Ethiopians engaged in this in the leadership, right? And that's exciting. That's right. really exciting because they're they're wanting more. They're wanting to understand. They're they're wanting to understand more of the parents' sacrifice of moving to Israel and right. realizing the preciousness of their culture and that they want to preserve it. And as opposed to, you know, leave it behind, you know, and become is, you know, just Israeli in the melting pot. It's, it's the, you know, the opposite that there's this, you know, renewal of this pride of, of being Ethiopian and what comes with that and the admiration of their parents of what they did to bring them to Israel, like, you know, and to make a new life and to give their kids this opportunity that they dreamt only dreamt about. So I think that's really exciting to have that that yeah. representation and, involved and I, in the leadership. Yeah, and I think that as they are they are experiencing that generational shift from one generation to the next, that's a critical moment because that's where yeah. they see that you know people tend to understand that well the first generation was tough for them they were adapting but they paid their dues but if then the second generation doesn't succeed then the frustration and disappointment becomes toxic 
and with reason, yeah. right? Like, so now, now it's a key generation. Like, it's really important not to not to lose that battle. So right. I would be remiss if I didn't do some sort of advertisement. So <laughs> we we are organizing a trip to Ethiopia in winter 2023. Nice uh, to ra- to raise awareness of this issue and hopefully, more importantly, to raise significant dollars. Uh, we're going to be walking. Uh, the title of the of this trip is walk in their shoes and we're going to do we're going to walk a little bit we won't quite make it to Sudan but we will be walking uh, and, and, seeing all, yeah. and seeing all, all yeah. the important sites in Ethiopia so to close when you look at the state of philanthropy the state of the world your own families what gives you hope there's really good people out there and uh, people do amazing things, especially when they work together in teams and share their ideas and having opportunities to have meaningful conversations to make change. So I'm all about people make the difference. There are many reasons to be hopeful. I believe that, as an example, in Canada, in this budget, foundations now are obligated to give away 5%, which is raised from 3.5%. So there's going to be about 600 more million dollars from foundations giving in Canada given away to help repair our very broken world. And that's, you know, I, I wrote an op-ed in the Global Mail suggesting that it goes from three and a half to five. And I'm going to write another op-ed saying that it should go from five to seven. Thank you so much to Shauna Goodman-Zone and Jonathan Goodman. You can learn more about Camp Israel and the other projects the Goodman Family Foundation supports at www.mrgff.org. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, but also guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. Write to us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. I leave you now with a quote from the Baal Shem Tov who said, from every human being, there rises a light. So keep finding the light in yourself and in others. Keep giving and join us next time on What Gives. What Gives.